Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. And next we have Alessandro Motri from here at UCSD with an exciting new report on comparisons of human and ape stem cells. I'll be talking about the use of uh, stem cells uh, as a novel tool for evolutionary studies. And this is something that was virtually impossible to think about it like three or four years ago. So, so these are human embryonic stem cells. And, uh, and a human embryonic stem cells can be isolated from the human blastocyst. So we can culture these cells into the right culture condition, in the proper condition, and these cells will self-renew, and they will propagate indefinitely, and we can induce the cells to differentiate or to specialize in multiple cell types, in different cell types of the body. That's what we call pluripotency. So it's a really powerful situation because one can then use those unlimited resources of cells for, uh, for transplantation purpose, and that's what we call the regenerative medicine. So diseases such as diabetes or Parkinson's one can transplant the cells back to the patient. There is a, a, a major bottleneck on that, which is the fact that the original cells that we use here do not share the same uh, genetic background as the patient. So they will suffer uh, immune rejection upon transplantation. So this is a major bottleneck. And one way to overcome that would be uh, to isolate one uh, somatic cell, and, and this can be done with cells that are easy to collect, such as skin, and we can transform these cells in cells that are pluripotent-like or resemble human embryonic pluripotent stem cells. And if you reach into this pluripotent state, you can now induce the cells to differentiate in the tissue, uh, in the target tissue, and you can uh, overcome this uh, potential immune rejection. So the word that we are looking here is how to induce or how to reprogram a somatic cell into a pluripotent stem cell-like. So this was achieved uh, three years ago in human cells by Shinya Yamanaka. And uh, he realized that both pluripotent stem cells as well as any other somatic cells, they have their own identity because they, uh, they, they express or they have uh, factors that are specific to different cell types. So what Yamanaka did was systematically, he decided to uh, add the pluripotent factors inside the somatic cells to overexpress these factors in the hope that he would find a combination of pluripotent factors that will now jumpstart the reprogramming process, and at the end, he will end up with a pluripotent, with induced pluripotent stem cells. And that's actually what he did. And we now know that this, uh, we are able to do that for several species. And uh, in, in the case of human cells, this has been attracted uh, a lot of attention because of the use uh, not only for transplantation purpose, but to model human disease. Let's take a mental disorder. You have a patient with a mental disorder. You can reprogram these cells back to this induced pluripotent state. And you can now drive the cells to differentiate into several cell types uh, that are present in the brain, such as neurons or astrocytes. These are all cell types in the brain. So you can then compare uh, the neurons from a patient that has the disease as well as from non-affected individual until you find what we call a cellular phenotype or what is the defect at the cellular level that may uh, be uh, connected to the mental disorder that the individual have. 
you can go on and move and study the connectivity between the cells, how these, these neurons connect to each other, how synapses are formed. And you can move, move on one more level and ask how the different cell types in the same tissue, such as brain, can actually interact with each other. And if you have uh, specific defects at these different cell types, at different uh, levels of organization, you can induce, you can use that as a readout uh, for a purpose uh, of drug screening. So maybe you are able to find a drug, a new drug that can actually revert or rescue this defect, this uh, cellular defect, and you can move on into clinical trials and hopefully you can help the patient. So what I've been proposing here is to use this idea of induced pluripotent stem cells to study different species. So let's take all, all the primates here. We can uh, isolate uh, somatic cells, and this is really almost no invasive procedure, so you can use uh, a little bit of skin cells and uh, skin biopsy, and you can propagate those cells, and you can use Yamanaka factors or the, the technology that he developed to uh, make or to induce these uh, pluripotent cells, and you can then drive the cells to specialize or to differentiate in different cell types of the body. And once you have that, you can start asking how a human neuron is different from a chimp neuron. And once, if you find difference, you can start connecting uh, with uh, the genetics. So we hear a lot about the genetics and bones and also anatomy, physiology, and uh, behavior. So you can start linking all these uh, levels, uh, layers of organization to have like a great understanding of human evolution. So that was the goal. So, uh, the, the, the ultimate idea is to generate these induced pluripotent stem cells from all the primates, but we decided to focus on, on, on these two species, the bonobos and the chimpanzees, and compare them with humans. So you probably hear that, that humans and chimps, they, are, uh, they share like 99% of alignable sequence, and just a comparison, uh, we share like 50% of alignable sequence with the bananas. So they're really close species, but they have very different behaviors, very different anatomy. So to, to induce these repotent stem cells, we start with a fibroblast, these are skin cells, and we add the Yamanaka factors here, and you immediately see that after a couple of days, the morphology and the behavior of the cells will change. So fibroblasts are elongated cells, and they like to, uh, to grow in their own, so they are isolated. Uh, so when, they, uh, when we move those cells that has these pluripotent factors into this human embryonic stem cell condition, they immediately behave uh, uh, in, in a different way. So they start to get together to each other, and they actually resemble uh, human cells, uh, uh, cells from uh, the human blastocyst. So they were grown in this human condition. At this stage, they start to express pluripotent markers, such as TRA-189 and NANOG. These are uh, immunostaining to, uh, to visualize the, the presence of these pluripotent factors on these cells. So the factors were not there in the fibroblast state, but after this transformation, they start to, uh, to be expressed. So we also confirmed that there is no gross genomic abnormality. So by just by doing like a G-bending karyotype, we can, we can check that actually they, sh they, they have the 48 chromosomes. And we repeat the same procedure uh, for uh, bonobos and also humans. And it's al always uh, good to see that the humans have like the 46 chromosomes compared to the 48 from the other primates. So 
One way to prove that the cells are really truly potent is uh, to induce the cells to start to differentiate in what we call the embryoid bodies. So you lift the colonies from the plate, and these cells will start floating around, so there is no uh, attachment to, the, to, to a dish. And in the absence of growth factors, the cells will round up, and they will start to differentiate into the, these three germ layers. So the three germ layers are the layers uh, in early stages of the embryonic development that will give rise to different cell types and different tissues in the body. So we can confirm the presence of these uh, markers for the three germ layers by PCR. And uh, we, we have here the three species in the induced pluripotent state and as well as in the embryonic body state. And the pluripotent markers are all highly expressed here, but they are down-regulated as soon as the cells start to differentiate. And you can see markers for the ecto, meso, and endoderm being up-regulated during this embryoid body formation. Another way to confirm that these cells acquire a state of pluripotency is to induce uh, teratoma formations in immunocompromised animals. So uh, teratomas are uh, solid tumors that has an embryonic origin. And when you uh, analyze uh, sections from teratomas, you can actually see several cell types. And uh, you can label these cells from the different uh, uh, germ layers. So you, you, you assure yourself that the cells can differentiate in different cell types. So, and then once we are convinced that we can make these pluripotent stem cells from the different species, the question is what kind of cell type would be ideal to study? We can study uh, neurons, muscles, or cardiomyocytes, heart cells. So virtually we can study any cell type, but because uh, myself and, and, and my group are a bunch of neuroscientists, we are brain crazy, we decided to focus in the brain. So, what kind of difference one would expect uh, to see in the brain? So there are lots of reports that uh, the, the brain, uh, the human brain, uh, have a different genetic expression compared to the other species. There is also a clear brain size and organization. So I doubt the, uh, the skull size of uh, all the primates are roughly comparable. The actual cranial capacity and uh, the brain size of humans are way much larger compared to the other uh, primates. So this is uh, just an indication that we should, we should start to see some, some of uh, those differences regarding uh, brain size in an organization as well as gene expression. So then we start making neurons. So let's induce those cells to become functional neurons. So it's a, it's a highly complex protocol and takes time. But uh, briefly, what we do is we take advantage of these embryoid bodies. So they are already have the three germ layers. And we plate these embryoid bodies in a narrow condition. And as soon as they reach this narrow condition, they start to form what we call the narrow rosettes. So these resemble early stages of neurotube formation. And at this stage, they already express some neural markers. So if you dissociate these cells, you can have like a more homogeneous population of neuroprogenitor cells. And those neuroprogenitor cells can now give rise to, uh, uh, to neurons and, and glial cells from the brain. So here is just uh, examples of neurons from the three species. Uh, actually, to visualize the neurons, we, we develop a tool that will uh, express the green fluorescent marker in, uh, only in neuronal cells. So we can distinguish the neurons from other cell types that are in there. And uh, those green uh, positive cells will also express other neuronal markers, such as synapsin or TG1. 
And because we have that, that uh, ability to visualize the neurons, live neurons, we can actually uh, use a small glass pipette and patch clump these neuronal cells, and, and we can actually record electrophysiologically and to, to confirm that they can actually fire action potential. So they behave as uh, functional neurons in a dish. All right, so then, then once we have those neurons, there are several possibilities. We can start uh, looking for things that are different between uh, the three species or uniquely uh, uh, about the, the human neurons. So one way that we decided to, uh, to move on and just to start uh, getting to the field was to, to, uh, to check for gene expression. So this is just some preliminary data, things that we, we are doing now, and we, we start with uh, gene arrays, and we are also incorporating some uh, next generation of uh, sequencing as well. So we decided to focus on isolated neurons. So we can isolate these green cells using a fluorescent uh, uh, sorter, and we can compare the gene expression from these three species. So because there are so many genes, and, and here is just like plots of, of genes uh, comparing in humans against chimps, humans against bonobos, and chimps against bonobos. Uh, and as you can see, there are some genes that are overexpressed in, in human neurons compared to, human ch to, to chimp neurons, and some other genes that are highly expressed in chimp neurons compared to, uh, uh, to human neurons. So basically, we have all kinds of possibilities. And these are, uh, uh, these are a lot of genes, way more than what we can handle. And because all of those genes have positive and negative interactions with other, it, it's really hard to, to work with uh, in individual genes. So usually when we have this kind of situation, we try to, uh, to group those genes in se several uh, uh, categories. And uh, that's what we call a gene ontology. So this is just one way to, to, to group those genes to see if something makes sense. It's not ideal because the same gene can participate in different uh, molecular uh, pathways or a different biological process. But yeah, you know, at least it shows you if there is something here to, to look around. So something that uh, calls our attention is that we start getting lots of these uh, biological process that is related to cell adhesion, locomotion, cell-cell interaction. And, and towards this point that there is probably something re regarding uh, neuronal migration that may be different between humans and chimps. So we are looking into that, but w would that make sense? Would be like a reasonable phenotype to, to look forward? So I think, I think it is. I mean, uh, here is just uh, the brain size and, and ages. You can compare that the, the time that uh, the chimpanzee uh, brain will take to reach a plateau is probably like five, uh, around five years uh, earlier than a human brain. So this is just one evidence for uh, neoteny or this retention of juvenile features in, in humans. And actually, I mean, if you, if you look around, our heads look like a, a juvenile chimp. So there, this has implications uh, that are quite strong. So if you rush through development, you may compromise neuronal wiring. So you, you want to take your time. Uh, the brain needs time to, to make the proper connections and, and to mature in, in the proper manner. So that would be one implication. So would we be able to see such kind of phenotype in culture? So this is something that we are uh, actually looking uh, more and more. But I'll, and I don't have the answer now, but I'll, I'll give you an example. This is a, a one work that we published last year just to compare one uh, mental disorder, and I'm, I'll be talking about Rett syndrome, uh, with no affected individuals. So Rett syndrome 
is a neurodevelopmental disorder, and the kids apparently they are born, uh, they are normal for the first year or so, and then you see these loss of communication skills, motor coordinations, and, and some of them uh, present like seizures, and also they have this large spectrum of autistic behavior, so they are actually part of the autism spectrum disorders. So Rett syndrome is it's 90% caused by mutations in a gene called MECP2. So the lack of function of MCP2 gene can actually make the neurons be more uh, less complex compared to human neurons. So they will lose this complex arborization. And because of that, they are often used as a prototype for autism spectrum disorders. So, and we repeat the same protocol. So we start with Rett syndrome patients. They all carry muta different mutations in the MCP2 gene. We, uh, we use a skin biopsy to, to reprogram skin cells into this pluripotent state. And then we induce the cells to uh, form uh, neuronal networks in a dish. So when we compare uh, the control neurons, so these are non-affected individuals with uh, affected individuals, we, we start to see our first phenotype, suggesting that uh, the soma size of affected uh, Rett syndrome patients are actually smaller, 10% smaller in size compared to non-affected individuals. So this is one morphological alteration. Another morphological alteration that we realize is the, 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 the density of uh, neuronal spines. So neuronal spines are uh, those uh, small uh, protrusions in neuronal process that actually uh, may, may, may be I mean, the actual structure where uh, the communication between neurons, the synapses, are formed. So we quantify these spines and we see that Rett syndrome neurons actually have a way a clear reduction in, in, in the number of spines when compared to controls. So we can now, because we know the genetic defect, what, something that we can do is, uh, is to artificially inactivate the gene in normal neurons. And that's what we do here. Uh, we can uh, remove the gene from these normal neurons, and we show that the treated neurons will, will have like a very similar phenotype to the disease neuron. And this is linking the genetic alteration to a cellular phenotype. So because uh, these spines can, can actually uh, be the place where synapses are, are, are happening, we have uh, several antibodies against synaptic proteins. And we can use these antibodies to visualize the synaptic punctua. So because we can visualize, we can actually count the number of synaptic punctua along those processes. And again, what we see is a reduction in the number of uh, synapses in the affected neuron, in the red syndrome neurons, compared to controls can we manipulate the system somehow? So one way of, of doing that is by treating the affected neurons with some drugs. And what we did here is uh, we treat uh, the Rett syndrome neurons with insulin growth factor 1, IGF-1. So by doing that, we were able to completely rescue or to restore the number of synapses in the Rett syndrome neurons. So all of this just to illustrate that the system can actually uh, be a powerful system to link genetic alterations to a cellular phenotype. So another point uh, uh, I would like just to, to use this one more slide is, to, is, is a collaboration that's going on between our labs and Caterina Semendeferi here in anthropology department at CSED. And we are looking uh, to try to reverse engineer the brain. And one way to do that is to, to look for uh, regions in the brain 
that are different between humans and chimps, and we can actually go on and laser capture those neurons and compare the gene expression of those neurons and see if we can get valuable information and put that back into the iPS system and see if you can reproduce this difference from the iPS cells, the induced pluripotent stem cells. So I'll finish here by just confirming that uh, I, I think I, I, I gave you enough evidence to suggest that chimp, bonobo, and human genome can be captured in this pluripotent state, and we can induce the uh, neuronal differentiation, and we can start to compare gene expression as well as molecular uh, and cellular phenotypes. And the IPS model can be a useful tool to complement, incorporate, or add valuable information to other evolutionary models. And the more we learn about ourselves, the more we learn about related species, the better for conservation purpose. And uh, this is uh, our APE team. I would like to thank uh, especially Carol Marqueto, who is really the leader of all of this. She's putting together all these different informations. And together with Bilal, they are looking for more cellular phenotypes. With Katarina, we are doing this reverse engineering approach. And more and more, uh, my group is, is getting involved with GeneNeo to learn more about gene expression. And as always, we always consult with Ajit and Pascal. So thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.